Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today, we have a very special guest, Mike Viking, who is an expert on all things happiness. Mike Viking is one of today's most influential happiness researchers and is the founder and CEO of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen. He is also a research associate for Denmark at the World Database of Happiness and a member of the Policy Advisory Group for the Global Happiness Policy Report. He has written and published several books, including the New York Times bestsellers, The Little Book of Hugo and The Little Book of Luca. Mike has been called the Indiana Jones of smiles and probably the world's happiest man by the times. Not only will Mike and I dive into the research behind what makes us happy, but also what to avoid that can leave us feeling dissatisfied in our lives. We also discuss different Nordic daily practices attributed to why the Nordic countries rank some of the happiest countries from year to year. And these are countries that only have a few days of summer per year. So just think about that. Part of our mission at the Naturally Well podcast is to help you live a healthier life and a happier one. There is no one better to learn the secrets to happiness than Mike, and we could all benefit from a little more happiness in our lives. Mike, welcome to the show. I was just telling you, we have been patiently waiting to have you on, and I'm so excited. I think, you know, we really wanted this to actually be one of our foundation episodes because something with our Naturally Well podcast that we are trying to instill with people and help them along their journey is not only with health, but with happiness and realizing that that's a huge part of being healthy, of feeling good, right. And just enjoying life, which I think is really what it's all about. So I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you so much for coming on. We were just saying we're all across the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. So I would love to just start off with a little bit about yourself and how you came to start the Happiness Research Institute and write so many books on the different Nordic philosophies and, you know, really any background you can give people, I think would really help them get to know you better and get to know where this conversation's going. Sure. So I think we have to rewind back to 2012. Um, So at the time I was working for um, a think tank in uh, Copenhagen focusing on sustainability. But in the autumn, I started to notice how much was happening globally with happiness and politics. You had uh, the UN pass a happiness resolution. They started to publish the World Happiness Report. Uh, You had different governments, they started to measure well-being, happiness as a measure of progress. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. There's a lot going on with happiness research. And the New World Happiness Report put Denmark in first place in a ranking of 155 countries when it came to happiness. And I thought, there should be somebody in Denmark trying to understand why is it that we often do well in these happiness rankings. There should be somebody trying to pull the knowledge in this field. Um, and then I thought maybe I should do that. And I, 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 I was, you know, in a good way, laying awake at night, thinking about how you could try and tackle happiness from a a scientific perspective. And, um, 
I, I, I just couldn't let go of, of, of the thought of working with this field. Um, and on the other hand, you know, it was also a, 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 you know, just in the wake of the financial crisis. And I had a well-being, well, well, well-paying steady job at, at the old think tank. Um, and I also thought it would be a little bit risky to start something as crazy as a think tank on happiness. Um, but then uh, on, on, on the more personal side, what happened was uh, one, of my, uh, one of my friends and, and a mentor of mine uh, unfortunately got very ill and, um, and died when he was 49. And many years ago, my own mother also died when she was 49. So I, I just started to reflect at that time. And, and back in 2012, I was 34, you know, 15 years uh, I would have until I would be 49. So I started to think, okay, if you only have 15 years left, what are you going to do with those years? Uh, and you can stay in this job, which is fine and it's stable. You're a little bit bored of it. Or you could try and create this think tank on happiness, which you feel a lot of energy around and, 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 and it could be a really fun thing. Um, and then after a couple of months, I, I essentially just quit uh, my old job and, and started out with what I thought was a good idea and a bad laptop. And uh, now we are, we are 10 people in, in Copenhagen uh, doing projects for companies, foundations, um, cities, uh, trying to basically solve three questions. So we try to understand how we can measure happiness. Secondly, why some people are happier than others. And thirdly, how we can improve quality of life. Um, and trying to have a, a scientific uh, perspective on that. I love that. And I'm curious with those three questions, right, that you're trying to answer, could you take us through what you found for each of them? Sure. Um, <laughs> or the, the cliff notes, Mike, I'm sure, there's, <laughs> I'm sure there's, but I guess, you know, what people could really take away today, even if it's just right. like, a few aspects of each um, that people could start incorporating into their lives. Yeah. I think, I think for the first one, how we measure happiness or what happiness is, I think it's useful to acknowledge that happiness or well-being or quality of life or the good life is a wide concept, right? You, you have one perception of what happiness is or the good life is. I might have another one. Um, so, so what we do when we try and quantify happiness is we break it down and we look at different perspectives or different elements. Uh, the same way if we were to talk about how's the U.S. economy doing, we would also break that down into you know, GDP per capita, inflation, growth, so on. And that gives us a language to talk about how's the U.S. economy doing. So with well-being or happiness, we look at an overall life satisfaction so if we take a step back and evaluate our lives, are we satisfied with what we see? Are we happy overall? That's one dimension. Secondly, we look at what kind of emotions do people experience on a daily basis? What kind of mood do people experience? Positive and negative emotions. Um, yesterday, did we feel happy? Did we feel a sense of connection? Did we feel you know, lonely, stressed, angry, worried, and, and so on? That's another element of the good life. And then thirdly, we look at whether people have a sense of purpose or meaning in life. And that's based on Aristotle's uh, perception uh, of, 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 of what the good life was or what happiness was. So, so those, I think, three ingredients are what we should put on, the, on our dish when we look at happiness or when we look at the good life. 
it's not one thing, but it's, it's, it's several things. Um, when it comes to the second question, why are some people happier than others? No big surprise, we can see there are numerous factors that impact life satisfaction or, or happiness. Everything from things we cannot control to genetics and our age. We can see from twin studies, we are born more or less happy. We can see identical twins have fairly similar happiness levels. We can see age matters. There's usually a U-shaped curve uh, throughout our lifespan. We're happiest when we're young and old, but sort of mid-40s when I'm where I'm approaching is, is when we reach our, our sort of low point. Uh, so things we cannot control. And then, you know, things that are um, not within our control, but, but, but not sort of in, in a biological sense predestined, where we live, you know. Um, usually the Nordic countries, as I'm sure we'll come back to, do quite well in, in happiness rankings. Um, and we see the least happy countries being countries like Syria, South Sudan, Central African Republic. Um, and then things we do have control over. What do we spend our time on? How is our sense of connection uh, with other people? Um, so, so a lot of different elements, some are within our control and, and some are not. And then the question is, you know, how do we improve quality of life? Well, that, that, that very much depend on where we are in the world and, and what sort of our, of course, our opportunities are. But usually, you know, improving our relationships will be a good uh, option. Um, and if we are talking about how to improve our mood on a daily basis, in Denmark, we often talk about the ABC for mental health. ABC is standing for act, uh, belong, commit. So doing something active, doing something together with other people and doing something meaningful uh, is, is, is usually a, a good uh, recipe. That might be, uh, for instance, in the fall, uh, my uh, girlfriend and a couple of friends of mine uh, and I, we went uh, just north of Copenhagen. There's a big forest and we went up there. Uh, of course, we had to spread out. There's still a Corona uh, pandemic going on in, in, in Denmark at the time. Um, so we, we were spreading out, but we could be together with other people. We were active. We were walking in the forest and we were looking for edible mushrooms. So so very meaningful, active in a way of, 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 of you know, uh, connecting with other people. So activities like that uh, is usually a good trick. Yeah. I think that leads perfectly into, cause I, I want to dive in, like why do the Nordic countries always rank so high on the list and you know, how do a lot of the philosophies, right? Like free, loose live, right. You know, when we talk about being in open air and outside um, and some of those other Nordic philosophies, which if you can give people a little bit of background on them, how do they play a role and how can other people start incorporating those philosophies into their routines? Yeah. 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 I think there's definitely, definitely the, the cultural aspect and the philosophies uh, that you describe. I think there's also sort of structural political reasons mm -hmm. uh, that the Nordic model of, of organizing society with, um, basically um, a focus on reducing causes for unhappiness, you know, universal healthcare, uh, free university education, um, relatively equal opportunities for, for men and women. I think that the Nordic countries are good at eliminating causes for worry and stress and unhappiness. And that brings up uh, 
the average and, and a lot of these rankings are, are based on, on averages. But I think when it comes to culture, I think there are, there are different sort of philosophies or different um, perspectives on it. Um, I think the Nordic countries and, and Nordic people have realized to a large extent that it comes down to sort of decoupling wealth and well-being. So understanding where can I find happiness that comes for free. That might be going to a forest looking for mushrooms with my friends. Um, but it, it, it's also sort of to some extent built into how we design our cities and our policies and our lives. Uh, so, so one example I'll I'll often mention of uh, from from Copenhagen is, you know, to me now it's summer in Copenhagen, right? And one of my favorite activities is after work, meet up with my friends down by the harbor and go for a swim. Now, swimming in the harbor doesn't sound so like a, a big pleasure in a lot of cities, but the city have invested in cleaning up the water in the harbor, so it's clean enough for people to go swimming in there. And that is something I enjoy tremendously. It's something I can do whether I'm rich or poor, um, and something that gives me a lot of happiness. Being outdoor, uh, you know, going for a swim with my fr friends. Now, in all fairness, our summer lasts for about two days, and then it's back to winter time again. But those two days are, are quite amazing. Um, and I think. I think sort of understanding how, you know, how do we decouple wealth and well-being? You know, what actually brings me happiness that is free of charge? Um, and focusing on that um, is, is, is part of the sort of Nordic uh, philosophy and, and Nordic way of life. You also mentioned friluftli which is a, a horrible word to, to pronounce, but, but it basically, basically means out outdoor living you know it's going on those hikes it's going on the the mushroom hunt it's going you know fishing or just basically hiking around the countryside being outdoors and we can also see from from studies that has a positive impact on our mood um so um in especially the uk they have really really cool studies where uh, people have downloaded an app and one, two or three times per day are asked, how happy are you right now? And then people report and they're followed uh, over a long period of time. And they also track the GPS data. And because it's the same people we follow over time, we can start to see when, you know, when Kate, she goes to the mountains, when she goes to the beach, she reports higher levels of happiness in the moment than when she is, you know, in the city. And, that's just for Kate, but when we suddenly have 10,000 people where we see when people are in the countryside, when they're in nature areas, they feel happier than when they're in urban environments. Then we start to see some patterns uh, that, that we can navigate from. Um, so, so there are evidence that supports you know, the, the, the happiness effect from, from nature and green areas. Yeah, that's, it's so interesting. And I feel like most of us, we know that, right? We're like, oh, being outside because it's promoted a lot. Get outside, increase your mood, et cetera. It's getting into that habit of really doing it. And that's where just from 
the research I've done and, um, watching so many different, you know, whether it's Ted talks or videos about why these Nordic countries are so happy is it's just part of their life. It's just part of the lifestyle. You're even if it's freezing outside, like you said, like you maybe have two days of summer, right? So it's not as conducive to go outside or you may not want to as much, but it's just part of the culture. And I think that's something that's kind of where people miss because they know it's good for them, but it's getting in that routine. And that's something I try and tell people is like, even just first thing in the morning, if even if it's five minutes, just get outside, bring your water, bring your coffee, whatever you want, but just get outside and be in that open air. Even if it's, you know, drizzling or it's not the best weather conditions, just even that five minutes, you feel different and you feel better. I've never had someone come back to me and say, okay, I stopped it because it wasn't making me feel good. It's usually, I can't not stop now. I have to go outside first thing in the morning. And so that's where I think developing that habit for people is really key because they, you know, they may know it, but just starting and for anyone listening, you know, just starting to take that five minutes, whether it's in the morning or at your lunch at lunchtime, or even in the evening after dinner, um, which is a great healthy way to add it in too. I'm curious now about, especially with COVID, because obviously we weren't allowed or able to be as social. How does socialization fit into happiness? Because I know, um, and I'm sure Mike, you're familiar with it, but the long-term study done at Harvard where one of the biggest things they saw that brought about happiness and health was meaningful relationships and that connection with other people. And so I'm curious, you know, how that plays a role. And then with COVID, if you saw some people's happiness, especially where you live, where it's so, it's so important, mm. go down or how that shifted. Yeah. First of all, I mean, you're absolutely right. The connection, the relationship we have with other people is I mean, perhaps the, the best predictor of whether people are happy or not. It's, it's also one of the relatively few factors that impact all those different dimensions of happiness we talked about earlier. Relationships impact life satisfaction. Relationships impact our mood. Relationship in, impacts our sense of purpose and meaning in life. You can have, you know, a salary level that might impact life satisfaction, but it doesn't impact uh, our sense of purpose or, or meaning in life. So, so here we have one factor, no matter how you look at happiness or how you want to dissect it, it's going to have a positive impact on it. And when it came to COVID um, and the pandemic's impact on happiness, we actually see a lot of mixed results. Um, obviously, some people have you know, lost loved ones and, you know, jobs and so on. And, and, and the pandemic have had a, a tremendously negative impact on them, their well-being. We've also seen, you know, um, people actually improving their satisfaction with life and improving what kind of emotions they experience on, on, a, on a daily basis. Those people are usually, um, or sometimes people who have endured long commutes earlier. So two hour, three hour commute on a daily basis 
suddenly a lot of us are forced to work from home and suddenly they find two or three extra hours per day. Those people have experienced a, a positive impact from, 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 from the pandemic. But I think we've all experienced a loss in connection with other people. I think most of us have missed our friends, our family and seeing them on a, on a regular basis. Um, my, my, my hope is once soon, hopefully when we go to on, on the other side of, of, of the pandemic is that um, first we, you know, we hopefully get a new sense of gratitude for the little things we took for granted earlier, meeting a friend for coffee. Um, but I think this past 18 months or, or what are we looking at now has also been a time for reflection for a lot of people, uh, especially those people that now have two or three hours extra per day because they've cut their commute. Also for companies starting to reassess, do we really need that big office and do we really need everybody to come in Monday to Friday, nine to five, or can we do things in a smarter way that also brings more well-being? Um, my hope is that that we'll see, we'll, we'll keep some of the positive um, aspects we have had from, from COVID and openness to, to remote, remote working for, for a lot of people uh, being one of them. Um, so yeah, that, that's my hope when we, when we move into uh, the end of 2021 and, and beyond. Yeah. And I think part of it too is, you know, the integration of going back to being so social. I know I've had a, a few clients where their anxiety has gone up because all of a sudden they have various engagements that they have to go to throughout the week or are invited to, and they feel the pressure to, because for so long we weren't able to do anything. Right. And I'm really curious to see, and as people, you know, for some companies that have decided to not let people work from home or give that option and they have to go back in the office, I'm interested to see how that affects people in terms of, you know, their anxieties or their happiness too of that drastic shift. Because like you said, I mean, we've been in it for a while. It's not like, oh, it was a few weeks and then we're coming back. Um, it's been a long time and people have adjusted. Right. So it's something I've seen just with, you know, whether it's the social anxiety piece of it, the work anxiety piece of it, of going back in person, but I'm sure you guys will follow that <laughs> Mike as well and see how it starts to affect people. But I know, you know, that socialization piece and the community piece that, the Nordic countries are so focused on does bring about a lot of that, you know, happiness and joy in life. And I hope too, for anyone listening that, you know, may notice that they like to be alone more often or try to avoid people, you know, really making sure that you're trying to develop those meaningful connections. It doesn't mean you have to be, you know, friends with everyone and say yes to every engagement, but really to nurture those meaningful relationships in your life and know that it really does have scientifically an impact on your health and your happiness. Right. Um, yeah. That reminds me of what a, an American student told me was this five or six years ago in, in Copenhagen. So I, I was teaching at a, an American 
University in, in Copenhagen. And we were talking about this concept called Hygge, which is a sort of Danish tradition, uh, best perhaps defined as the art of creating a nice atmosphere. Um, but it's really about sort of slowness and just sort of simple pleasures in life. And this, this student, she was saying that she was an introvert and the way people socialize in Copenhagen around Hugo in smaller groups, you know, fitted her quite well compared to what she was used to in terms of sort of a more sort of high energy, high powered networking, socializing situation that those sort of smaller groups, um, taking things slow, staying at home, you know, maybe playing a board game and things go crazy. Um, that, that sort of fitted her uh, temperament uh, better. Um, so um, I think that's also why it's been interesting to see there's, there's been a surge in interest in Hugo in the past um, year or so, I think because of Corona, because, you know, Hugo has also been described as the perfect night in. And since we've all been forced indoors uh, for the past uh, year and a half, I think more people have been looking for, uh, for that. Yeah. And if you could, Mike, can you just explain, because also too, you have, you wrote the little book of Hugo as well. Can you just explain, uh, you know, I'm familiar with it, but for our listeners, um, what it is and what it encompasses. Yeah. I, I think perhaps best described with, with sort of the opening example in the book, um, that, comes from a, a trip I had in Sweden a few years ago with, with a group of friends. And it was, it was during December and we had rented a cabin and we had been outside Friluftsliv hiking in the <laughs> afternoon and, uh, and came back uh, uh, to the cabin and we got the fire going and we had prepared a stew, which we got boiling on the stove. And we were just sort of kicking back and, and in our comfy clothes and enjoying a, a glass of wine. And the sort of silent company we were in, besides from, from the fire in the fireplace and, and the stew boiling. And that was, that was Hugo. That, that, that is to me the essence of Hugo. And, and, and one of my friends at the time said, could this be any more Hugely? which is the <laughs> of, of the, the word. And then a, a, another one said, yes, if there was a storm outside, because Hugo is also this feeling of being sheltered uh, from the outside. So, so um, it's, it's that it's, cozy it's, feeling, right, Mike? It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's cozy. It's a sense of comfort. It's a sense of connection. It's a sense of togetherness. Um, and I think there's also a, it's, it's being consciously cozy. I think there's a recognition of the fact that we have a nice time. Um, and um, Danes will talk about Hugo constantly. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, we'll invite you over and then during the week we'll talk about how Hugely Friday is going to be. And then on Friday we'll talk about how Hugely this is. And then on Monday we'll talk about how Hugely Friday was. Um, and it's, it's sort of, it's, it's a big part of social life in Denmark. It's a big part of how we see ourselves. It's, 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 it's a value we think is part of the Danish DNA and, and Danes will believe we have a monopoly on Hugo, which of course we don't. Uh, but, but I think Hugo 
Danes see Hugo the same way that perhaps Americans will see freedom, right? You see it as something inherently American. Danes will see Hugo as something inherently Danish. Um, but of course, it happens everywhere. It happens in New York, it happens in LA. Um, interestingly, though, I've, I've noticed, I've seen Google, I've looked at Google Analytics, and the further north you are in the US, the more frequently people Google Hugo. So, so it might be sort of a northern state mm -hmm. of mind. Um, but it's, 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 I was surprised with how much Hugo caught fire and how many, how many people have embraced Hugo. So, so the book is now translated to 38 or 39 languages. And I think, honestly, I think it was in part because we gave people a word and a language to appreciate something they were already doing. Yeah. Um, I, I remember a French lady wrote me that she, you know, normally she, she would have, you know, spent an afternoon with her kids, you know, they would have been on the sofa and had some tea and some 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 biscuits and cuddle up under some blankets. And earlier she would have thought of that afternoon as a lazy afternoon. Now she calls it a hugely afternoon. <laughs> Which I love is, it. It's really nice that we just remove the guilt from what should be a nice activity with your kids. Um, so yeah, I think it, you know, it's 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 interesting and um it's been really fun to hear the reactions. I, I get a lot of, of, of letters from, from readers and also to see how Hugo has impacted their lives. Um, there, there's one example in particular I really like uh, from a, a Canadian guy. Um, a big part of Hugo is, is because of the atmosphere, it's how we light rooms. You know, do we have the right sort of temperature of our light you know hugo lighting is is warm it's 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 a little bit dimmed um you know in contrast to sort of white harsh lighting um so so danes will you know they'll use a lot of candles uh, we actually use twice as many candles as as number two in europe anyways so 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 one of the chapters in the little book of hugo is about lighting and this canadian wrote that or told me that um after he, he read the little book of Hugo, he went out and he bought some, um, I forget the word for it, but you, you, you know, they, they, they hold the candles and you put them on the table. Oh, the candlesticks. Candlesticks, right? Yeah. He bought candlesticks. And, and he started to, to light candles for dinner at home with his family. And they have three uh, teenage boys. And, and uh, he said that when he first started to light the candles for dinner, the boys, they started to tease him. Dad, what's going on with the candles? Spending <laughs> time with mom. Should we leave? Um, but he says, eventually the boys they became the one that lighted the candles for dinner, and it became this sort of ritual for their their family dinners. But the really cool part was that he says that the family dinners now last fifteen to twenty minutes longer because the candles, the atmosphere, the environment, exactly. Yeah. They, put the, they put the boys in a storytelling mood. And I, I love that example because it, I think it's a great example of how a little change in how we design our family dinners, how we, um, how, how a small design change can, can change how a family interact. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's one example. No, I, yeah, I, I read your book, Mike, and that's something I love. I'm glad you brought that up because there's so many different things you can do to 
right? To make your environment more Hugo, right? And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to do every aspect, but just like the little bit of lighting. Or I really love what that woman said of just changing your perspective from what she thought was a lazy afternoon. And right. Also, when your perspective is something more negative and then changing it to, no, this is actually, this is Hugo, right? Or associating it with something. But what I think the difference is too, is everyone wants to experience Hugo, right? Like everyone wants to be cozy and comforted and just, you know, feel that feeling, but it's if you seek it out or not, which I think like you're saying that Danes do so well and in the Nordic region is they're seeking it out. So they're trying to make their environment more like that. And I think that's That's something that everyone could take away versus, you know, probably more so in the States when you are feeling Hugo, you are thinking, oh, I'm being lazy. I'm hanging out on the couch. I'm not doing much, but knowing that that's okay, you know, giving ourselves permission to do that. And that's what I think Hugo does. It gives yourself permission to enjoy that, you know, biscuit on the couch with your NT with your kids or whatever it is and watch a movie or just have good conversation, play a card game. You have your candles lit and really just enjoy. And I'm sure with the pandemic, when people had to find new things to do, whether I, you know, a lot of people were doing puzzles and other things like that, they were experiencing Hugo and creating that environment and just had no idea, but I'm hoping people can take that into this you know, next phase of life when we are, you know, getting more busy again and making sure and seeking out that comforting, cozy feeling and knowing that it's okay. Um, I'm curious too, then with your other, the little book of, and please correct me if my pronunciation's wrong, but the little book of likey, am I, am I close? You're close. Uh, okay. We can get closer if we say Luke. Luke. Okay. Perfect. Very good. Well done. Um, but if you could explain a little bit about that philosophy um, and your book. Yes. So, I mean, the little book of Hugo, you know, looked at, you know, what works well in, in, in Denmark in terms of creating well-being. With the little book of Lukke, I wanted to say, well, Denmark doesn't have a, a monopoly on happiness. And I think there is a lot we can learn from many different countries around the world in terms of what brings us happiness or what brings us happiness. So Lugge is the Danish word for happiness. And there I, I explore um, six factors we can see, explain why some people are happier than others from, from country to country and what people and countries and cities are, are doing right in terms of those six factors around the world. So it's money, it's uh, freedom, it's, um, it's good governance or freedom from corruption. It's um, it's um, um, healthy life expectancy. It's um, generosity and it's social support. I think that was six. Um, and um, yeah, and, and then we look at you know what works well in um, Japan, for instance. Um, they have a concept called uh, shinrin yuku, which basically means means forest bathing. So we're back to Friluftsliv again. Um, you know, it's, it's going for a slow walk in, in the forest, sort of opening up all your, your senses. 
in uh, Bhutan, the small uh, country in the Eastern Himalayas, uh, they have um, something in their school called um, brain brushing, not brain washing, but brain brushing. So they start and finish the school day with a small mindfulness exercise uh, that, that um, um, has a positive impact on, on the students' well-being and ac academic performance. Um, so little things we can learn from our, around the world. Uh, you know, why is it that the French uh, spend more time eating than anywhere else uh, in, uh, in, in the world? Uh, spoiler alert, it's because of the three dishes and it's because it's seen as a social uh, activity. Um, the, it's an official diet uh, advice in France that you eat together with other people. So, you know, it was, it was trying to sort of uh, remove the focus on, on Denmark and saying there's a lot we can learn from, from each other. Yeah, my, so my mother's family is all from, my mom's Belgium. And so her, you know, my whole family lives over there. And every time we go to visit, it's like every meal is such a social interaction. There's never a TV on, there's never... I mean, any distractions and it's always, you know, a feast. And I always loved that about going there just as a child. And it's something, you know, not only can it bring you about more happiness, but also in the health aspect too, getting rid of distractions, not being on your phone or trying to work while you're eating and actually pay attention. It's also really good for your digestive tract. Um, and also feelings of fullness too. And, um, I think that's a big piece of incorporating that socialization into your daily meals. Or even if, you know, if you live alone and you don't have someone with you, it's still just being mindful and using, you know, even that time to be mindful for, you know, the 20 minutes you're eating or, or less or whatever it is. Um, I'm curious, Mike, though, we've talked a lot about like what can make us happy. Are there things you found more so that can make us unhappy or that people should be aware of to avoid? I know you had your Ted talk on like also the dark side of happiness. Um, so even if you want to touch on that, but I'm curious just if there are things that people should be more conscious of or avoid that can make them more unhappy. Yeah, I think, I th was it, was it Eleanor Roosevelt that said, comparison is the thief of joy? Um, let's say it's Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, <laughs> um, we, what often comes up in the research we do is the negative impact of social comparisons. Um, you know, we are social beings, we, we compare ourselves to each other, um, but we can see that that can sometimes have a negative effect on, on our satisfaction with life. Um, we see it when we look at how our salary or income levels impact our happiness or, or well-being. Um, people often care more about their relative income than their absolute income. So if I'm happy with you know, let's say $40,000 per year depends on whether my friends make 30 or $50,000 per year. Um, and I think, you know, in some countries you have a saying that a happy man is a man that makes $100 more than his wife's sister's husband. And we can, to some extent, then see that uh, in the data. Um, 
the trouble is, you know, you will always find somebody who makes more money than you. You will already always find somebody who does better than you in whatever sort of discipline you are um, you are looking at. Um, the 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 issue I think also, especially with money and income, is there's always a higher number, right? You'll get to that. I don't know, hundred thousand dollars then you'll be happy for a while. Then you'll set a new goal of 500,000 or a million dollars. Then you'll get to that goal and then you'll set another one. Um, and, 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 and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm conscious and curious about that, that we talked about earlier. How do we decouple wealth from well-being? How do we make sure we have at the top of our mind areas, activities, things we can do that are free of charge, where we sort of remove the power money has over us. Um, that that sort of mechanism where we we sort of we look at a higher number constantly, we constantly raise the bar for what we feel we need in order to be happy. It's also quite well documented in happiness research. It's something we call the hedonic treadmill. Um, it's not only when it comes to money uh, that kicks in. Um, it's basically um, you know, all the accomplishments and things we desire, once we reach that, you know, we'll be happy for a while and then we'll set ourselves a new goal. So I think being mindful of that, that there is no one thing I can achieve that's going to make me permanently happy. Um, hits me over with the head with that sort of old cliche of enjoying the journey and not the destination. But I think that's a really important point yeah. uh, to make. Um, and also trying to perhaps be mindful of not comparing ourselves too much with other people and perhaps using ourselves as the reference uh, saying, you know, you know, how can I be happy a year from now, a month from now compared to, to today? And, uh, you know, having that as a milestone instead of comparing myself to, to a, a reference group. Yeah. And that's, that's the tough part with social media these days, right? You have so many, I mean, it's at our disposal. Exactly, We can yeah. compare ourselves to anyone. We exactly. can compare ourselves to celebrities. We can compare ourselves to our best friends. We can compare ourselves to the person you don't even know that you just started following. And, you know, I've seen that a lot um, with even clients too, and they're happy, you know, how their happiness is dictated can sometimes be how much they're using social media. I mean, I even notice it for my, for myself, um, even more recently I am Mike. So I am, I am pregnant right now. Um, I'm about 35 weeks pregnant. Thank you. And, and for the past, probably about the past month or so, I've really just tried to disconnect from social media, which can be tough for me because it's also my business. And it's also, you know, promoting our podcast and just realizing too, though, it wasn't serving me well, you know, it wasn't making me feel good to one, you know, the comparison piece of it, but also wasn't the best use of my time. Like right now I want to be enjoying, like you're saying, being outside and spending time with my husband and making memories before we're no longer two people. And 
I've just noticed my happiness level going up, but I think that's, and I'm curious, even if you guys have noticed with your research, because social media is so much more prevalent now, if you've seen that affect people's happiness levels. We, we have, and yes, you're right. We, we have done a couple of studies on that. Um, and we find also what you describe that, you know, social media being a constant bombardment of, of great news that happens for everybody else. It can put our own lives in a sort of negative light and, and we can become less satisfied with what we see in our own lives compared to what we see on, on Instagram. Um, the follow-up study we did sort of dug a little deeper and, and I think we see that effect I talked, uh, I, I talked about before, but we also acknowledge that, you know, social media is a tool that can be used for good or bad. So it, if, if we use it to compare ourselves to other people, then yes, it has a negative effect. But if we use social media to actually be social, to connect with other people, to organize social events, once that's possible again, uh, then it can actually have a positive effect. Um, so, and it also depends who we are and where we are in our lives. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I think being mindful of that and, and how we use that tool and, and do we use it for something positive or, or negative when it comes to happiness, I think being aware of that is, is a good first step. Yeah, it's no, it's true because there are times I will say for myself where I'm like thriving on it and it is bringing me joy and it's bringing me energy because you're connecting with other people. And then there are times where it's like, you know, I need to remove myself for a second and knowing that that's okay too. And a lot of people talk about, you know, social media breaks and things Mm -hmm. like that, but I think they can be really helpful. I think just the thing people have to think about is, and making sure is, to just honor how you're feeling, yeah. right? If you are feeling like it's getting too much, it's okay. Take a little break. Um, or if you are feeling like it's giving you energy and positivity, that's a good time to get out all your ideas. Or if you're using it as a marketing tool as well, capitalize on that time and then you know be able to give yourself that allowance if it's not making you feel good after to take a break. Um, I, so I'm curious, Mike, before we wrap up, is there anything we did not cover today that you feel for our listeners could be really beneficial and just, you know, increasing their overall happiness or any piece of wisdom? Let me come back to that because I, I, I was yeah. just reminded by a case I think I put in the little book of Lucky when it comes to social media, um, because I think it's also about you know getting to that critical mass. Because if you are the only one without social media, especially I think if you're a teenager, that could be quite a lonely experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in in Denmark, there's a boarding school that has kids. Um, I think they're 14 to 16, and this boarding school, when the students arrive. Um, all the devices are taken from the kids, all the iPhones, all the iPads and whatnot. Uh, and the kids can only have their devices for one hour per day. So for 23 hours, no phones, no devices. And then once six months has passed after the first semester, it's put to a vote among the students. Should we continue with the system or should everybody get their phone back? 
And usually 80% of the students vote to keep the system in place. So being without their phones for 23 hours, because once they experience that, you know, if none of us have our phones, we actually connect with the people we are with uh, instead of being on, I don't know, is it TikTok nowadays? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you say nowadays you sound older than you are. <laughs> Uh, but but I, I think that's an interesting case. Um, you know, getting to that critical mass of people not being on, on social media. Yeah, no, I would think most people, honestly, it's like what you said. If everyone has social media or those social outlet means, you want to you have a more of a feeling of wanting to be a part of it. But I think a lot of people would be happy if someone said, you know what, all social media is gonna go away tomorrow. Yes, for some people, again, if it's like a business tool, marketing tool, maybe upset. But I think for the social aspect, I think a lot of people would be happy about it. They wouldn't feel as drawn to go in and look at the comparisons and things like that. So I I love that that was what they chose too. And it, it, it shows you that people, you would rather connect in person um, than online, which it's still connection in general. So like we said, it can also bring you happiness too. Indeed. In terms of sort of final, uh, final advice, I think, <laughs> I mean, you know, being a Dane living in Copenhagen, I, you know, I, I, I cannot leave this without talking about bicycles uh, because <laughs> personally, and, and uh, I think generally they do bring a lot of joy. So, so, the majority of people in Copenhagen, they cycle to work. That includes, I think, members of parliament, the majority of them cycle to work. Um, And we can see from studies, numerous studies, having an active commute, walking to work if that's possible, cycling to work or to your place of of, of study has a positive impact on well-being. Earlier, we talked about sort of the habit of things. Um, and I think it's important to say, yeah, it's a habit now, but it's, it's for, for me and, and for, for people in Copenhagen, but it's a habit because it's become the convenient choice. So it's easier for me to cycle around Copenhagen than to drive because there's been so much investment in the infrastructure for cycles and for pedestrians that it makes it the logical choice. Yes, it's good for mental health. Yes, it's good for or lowering the pollution in town, and it's actually good for the cars because there's fewer people in the car lanes and so on. But I do it because it's good for me, and it's the fast and convenient way of convenience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I think that's something for for city makers to to keep in mind that you know you know Copenhagen is a, is a cycle city today, but it's actually something that you know wasn't necessarily the case you know fifty or sixty years ago, um, and you know. Cycling today is the natural, healthy, easy choice um, because the infrastructure makes it so. Um, so I think it's, it's also being aware of how the places we are in impact how we feel. Um, you know, I think it was Churchill that said, you know, we shape our cities and then they shape us. And we can also really see that uh, in the evidence. And, and, and that is something I'm, I'm starting to look more at in, in my research and in my writings, how the places we live impact how we feel. So I think being mindful of that and how we feel different in different places, also coming back to what you said earlier about being outside uh, the whole sort of 
philosophy around uh, free love sleep. Yeah, no, my husband and I are definitely big proponents of, you know, we're originally from the East coast, Mike, and we moved to California for a few years. Um, and now we're actually moving back to the East coast, but to, um, Wilmington, North Carolina. So we tend to say we, we follow, you know, our life by lifestyle and choose our lifestyle first. And then, you know, we, we try to make sure work aligns with it and other things align family, et cetera. But we really, you know, focus on the lifestyle aspect of it because we know if we can't go ride a bike most months out of the year or go for a walk and be outside comfortably for most months out of the year, that's something that really affects us. Um, or for us being near the water is really, it's just something we both love. My husband loves to surf. I just love to be near it, in it, anything. (laughs) And, um, you know, we get a lot of, I wouldn't say negative feedback, but people are usually shocked, you know, like, well, how are you just, you know, moving there or how can you do that? And we're so focused, like you said, uncoupling that wealth from your happiness and from your health as well. It opens up so many doors and that's where, you know, we've taken a lot of risks before and you always, you figure it out. And again, if you're content and you're happy, you're more likely to figure it out in a better way. Um, than if, you know, let's say you move somewhere for a job and it's not conducive for your lifestyle or making you happy, what's the point, you know? So, um, I love that, that piece of advice too. And so we love Mike at the end of every episode, we do a little rapid fire Q and a. So the first thing that comes to mind, um, <laughs> first one is what is your favorite de-stressing practice or tool? Oh, uh, being outside. Love it. Um, we, we have, a, we have a small garden uh, by our house. So um, just going out on the terrace, whether it's, 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 it's uh, sunny or not, de-stresses me, uh, immediately. Love it. Um, coffee or tea? Coffee. <laughs> and do you put Please, do you put anything in your coffee or just bl- or just straight black? Um, uh, a bit of milk. Okay, a bit of milk. Um, and then this is my favorite question. But what is your favorite home cooked meal? <sighs> oh, <laughs> I mean, these days it's often just a sort of. Is it a, do you call it a side of, um, of salmon yeah. in the oven, roasted potatoes and a salad? And oh. It's, it's healthy, it's yummy and it's fast. And you're getting like the best salmon too. <laughs> Probably. Probably. You guys are right there. No, that, yeah, no, that sounds great. Actually. I think we were, I think we're actually having something similar for dinner tonight. Um, but yeah, and I'm sure too, it's like whoever you're eating with as well. It's just that, that feeling. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for coming on. Um, I'd love for you to tell people where they can connect with you, find you, um, learn more about your books and, um, just get to understand the role that happiness can play in their lives. Sure. 
I mean, online, I think the best sort of portal would be the, the Happiness Research Institute website. So happinessresearchinstitute.com. Um, if people are in Copenhagen, um, we opened a small happiness museum uh, last year. So they can check that out and look at happiness from, from many different perspectives. Um, so I think those are, are two good sources. Okay, great. Um, and then, like I said, you know, I've loved, I read your little book of Hugo. Um, I think there's just so many great bits in there. So for anyone that needs, you know, a good short, they're easy reads too, which I love, but a good short book. So thanks again, Mike. And hopefully we will be in touch soon. And I'm really hoping we will meet someday in person and um, I'll get to come to Copenhagen. I'll give you a tour of the happiness museum. I'd love that. (laughs) Taking Mike's research-backed advice, I want you to focus on consciously uncoupling your wealth from your happiness. Start by making a list of activities that you love that are free and make it a point to plan them into your weekly routine. Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can watch every episode of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. If you want to know more about me, you can follow me on Instagram at livewellwithkate, where I typically live on my stories, providing a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Well is hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.